I was reading this passage this week and thinking, what am I going to speak on? Because you can preach about five different sermons from this, this passage. Um, and I, I come this morning with a message that is, in a sense, very open-ended because I'm, this is new territory, in a sense, for me. Um, what, we're gonna, what I'm going to speak on, what we're going to be looking at this morning. But this is one of Paul's prayers. He prays for the believers who read his, his, his letter. And it wasn't just the Ephesians who were getting, this is a circular letter. So it got read in the church in Ephesus and it got read in other churches in different cities in the region. And so all of these believers were reading as Paul was praying this prayer. And my goal this morning is to get down to the very heart of the prayer. My sense is that Paul starts and he starts praying and he prays and he goes down and he, he, he digs a little deeper and he gets a little deeper. And, he, and we want to, we want to dig down with him to the very heart of what he's praying for believers in this prayer. Um, if, if you've been following along with us for the last couple of weeks, um, we've been looking in verses 3 through 14, and Paul begins, that's a section of praise. Paul begins by praising God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Spirit for their, um, this work that they've done in, in salvation for us as believers. And then he, he, he moves into, following praise, he moves into prayer, into petition. And I want to suggest to you, just as we open, that it's, it's worth always pairing those two. It's worth praising God for what we do have, but it's also worth petitioning Him for more. To not sat, be satisfied, to not be complacent, if you will. Uh, I titled this sermon, It Is What It Is, or Is It? Because that phrase, it is what it is. When I moved to New Jersey, what is it, th- nearly three years ago now, two and a half years ago, that was a phrase that I came across very quickly. Everyone said it all the time. Do, this, do people use this phrase in this country? It is what it is. In, in, in New Jersey, it was used all the time, constantly. And I caught on and used it very quickly as well. But at some point, I started to get a little convicted about that phrase because uh, on one hand, it's, it's, it, 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 it speaks of a sense of powerlessness, it is what it is. I can't change anything. There's nothing I can do. But it also speaks to a sense of, uh, uh, it, it relieves us of re- responsibility. Sometimes in professional sports in the States, you get, and I speak because I don't know enough about English sports yet. It'll come. Bear with me over the next couple of years. <laughs> um, but it, it, sometimes you get players who have done or said something wrong, and they sit in front of the camera and they go, it is what it is. They're not willing to take responsibility as well. So it's complacency, it's powerlessness, it's lack of responsibility. And on one hand, we live in a society today which is power-hungry, desperate for power, but on the other hand feels powerless. It is what it is. And if I can show my hand, my card's too early, That's, in a sense, the heart of the prayer where Paul is going this morning. He wants us to understand God in the very depth and fullness of His power. And He wants to know us. He wants us as believers to know that. And it's power not just for the future, but it's power for today as well. And so he begins in verse 15 to pray. And he gives us the motive of his prayer. His motive, he says, for this reason. 
This is the motive. He's about to tell us. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. The reason is because he has heard of the faith that the believers have in the Lord Jesus and their love, their faithfulness towards all the saints. But this, when he uses that phrase for this reason, he's also looking backwards to the previous verses. In essence, what he's saying is, because I've heard that you have this faith in the Lord Jesus, because you have this love for the saints, and because I know that that means that you have this enormous, great salvation through Jesus, through the work of Christ, sealed by the Spirit, you have access to, in verse 3, all, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's a big reason. He knows, that we're, he knows that the believers in Ephesus are saved because he's heard about it, which means that they have access to all of these blessings. That's his motive. In other words, it's not enough just to have access to the blessings, but we need to actually go and access them. It's the equivalent of having, we talked about this last week, Spurgeon's checkbook of faith. It's not enough to have the bank account with the money in it and to have the book of checks that you could write. You actually have to start writing some checks as well and withdrawing from the account of God's spiritual blessing. And I suspect Paul prays this because in those days, as now, there's a lot of Christians who are walking around who are not making the most of the blessings and the power that are available to us. Paul says, for this reason, I remember you in my prayers. And then we get to the matter of the prayer, the subject, the content of the prayer. And he begins, and there's two, there's two parts to this. The first part is, 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 is key to the second part, and we're going to see that. He says in verse 17, I pray that God... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We know God through Jesus, but we also know him as he's the one from whom and to whom all glory goes and returns. I pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So, so the first thing he prays is that we would have the spirit, that's the ministry of the spirit, that we'd have a spirit of wisdom, that sort of general knowledge, and then revelation, that's knowledge, that's insight that needs to be revealed to us through the spirit's ministry to us. And this is specifically wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who? Him, God. So the first part of the prayer is that we would be able to know God more fully, more deeply. And he follows that up with that phrase, so that, or having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know. So there's something about how when the spirit of wisdom and revelation is at work in us, that he leads us to a deeper knowledge of God in a way that opens the eyes of our hearts. This is a picture of, of the inner man. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll get there in a couple weeks, a couple months. We'll see how we go. <laughs> 
In chapter 3 and verse 17, he, he, he prays that, that God would grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's what that phrase, the eyes of your hearts, the eyes of your inner being, of the depth of everything you are. Both sort of depth, but also holistically, if that makes sense. He's praying that we would know God more fully, more deeply, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, practically, and experientially. Most of us know God in an intellectual way. We know, James says, even the demons do that. (laughs) They believe God exists. Most of us know, have some intellectual assent. Yes, God exists. I can see it. Some of us have moved beyond. There's a deeper level of intellectual knowing. Some of us have know God in an emotional sense. We've felt Him. He's ministered to our hearts and our spirits. I hope you've experienced that. Some, sometimes the emotional stuff makes us a little nervous. Perhaps we've been exposed to emotionalism, being manipulated through emotions. Some of us know God spiritually. We need to know him experientially. You can look in your life and say, yes, I've seen him at work. It's happened. And he's used me in other people's lives as well. This prayer from Paul is a prayer that we would know God, that the spirit would open our eyes to know him more fully. Can I ask you this morning, is there one of those intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, practically, or experientially, where you sense that, that, that you don't know God as well as you ought. Maybe there's some fear there because there's, there, some, there's been some, uh, some emotionalism in the emotional realm or some, something wrong with the intellectual knowing of God in another area. But, but is there somewhere, some area of your life where you think, actually, I've, I'm holding off on leaning into knowing God more deeply in that area? Is there some area of your life? Would you ask the Lord this week to show you where he wants to draw you into deeper relationship with him? Paul asks God the Father to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know him more deeply on every level. We'll come back to that later uh, as we get into this. The goal of this, he says in verse 18, he asks for the spirit of wisdom so that we can know God, grow in the knowledge of God by having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that, and this is the second part. So the first part, sorry, the second part is dependent on the first part. We have to have that spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to see the second part happen so that, And he goes down in levels, three things, so that you may know what is the hope. That's the first thing to which he has called you. To may the hope that he has called you, the inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we talked about a couple weeks ago that that inheritance idea here, it's a little bit vague. It's his inheritance in us and it's our inheritance in him as well. It's both encapsulated there. So that we may know the hope, that we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance, and then all the way down so that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. That we may know his hope, the inheritance, and the power of God. 
and, and he goes down, each one goes a little deeper. The first one is this idea of hope. We now know the hope that we have in him. We, we had a definition of hope last week. It's this idea of an expectant anticipation of what God is going to do in the future based on what he's done in the past. We live in a world desperate for hope. I I was watching my children this week. And uh, so often when I look at my children and I sort of am watching them and observing and you start to make and analyze a little bit. And all of a sudden I realized that God was putting his finger on me as well. Let me tell you what I mean. I was thinking about hope, and it struck me that my children exhibit both kinds of hope. True hope and, and false hope. Sometimes we let them watch TV, but not always. And so sometimes they, they get up from quiet time in the middle of the day, and, and they come downstairs saying, can we watch TV, please, please? And they whine, and then we say, we, we say no, they fight, and they bicker, and they're just, they're miserable. And they make us miserable. And that's a false hope. It's a hope of, I don't know whether this might happen, but I'm going to keep bugging and bickering and fighting. And it's, it's because it's not a certainty in their minds. On the other hand, sometimes we say on Wednesday night, hey guys, on Friday night, we're going to do movie night. And it's a sure thing. And their response is completely different. Daddy, I can't wait. Oh, I'm so excited. How can I help? Can I, can I get the food ready? What can we do? I'm so excited. Oh. And as I was looking at my children and, and thinking, that's interesting, two different kinds of hope. The, the Lord poked at my heart and said, you know, you do the same thing. When, when you put your hope in the wrong things, when, you, when, when you're not certain of something, when you forget my promises, you start to get... Angry, bitter, start to bicker with Joe when we're out on a Monday morning at book table. We get, I do the same thing. How many Christians do we know walking around today who are walking around in a spirit of bitterness? We're cynical. We've got stress and anxiety because we don't know the certainty of the call, of the hope of the calling to which we've been called. We need to know that. And Paul digs down into the next level that that certainty of that hope is based on the next thing down, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That God, we have great value to him as his people and he has great value to us as our God. And as Peter says in 1 Peter and chapter one, and I keep going back to this verse, it's one of my favorite verses we sing about it in a song sometimes called Living Hope. He says, you have been born again to a living hope. Not just born, you've been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable. It doesn't have an expiration date on it. It's undefiled. Nobody can touch it, and it's unfading. It's not going to wear out with time. and it's kept for you in heaven. That's a little bit of a, an abstract thought, in a sense. That feels very far. Does that feel far away to you, that inheritance that we have in the future that undergirds our hope right now? Does that feel a little far away to you sometimes? Or are you more spiritual than me? You might be. It's possible. Yes? No? Does it feel a little far away sometimes? 
This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to, 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 to reinforce in our hearts and in our minds in a way that comes out in our daily living that yes, we do have that inheritance. It is there. It's safe for us. And actually, and we're going to dig into this a little more as we look at his power. It's not just for the future. God wants us to experience that inheritance now, today. There are promises that he has made that are good for today. In Christ, now, we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I was looking at, uh, some of you have been following the news this week, and Wolverhampton is part of the leveling up fund, 20 million euros or something that we've got access to as part of the leveling up scheme across the country. And they interviewed some folks. There's a video. I think my mom shared the video on her Facebook. But I read some other interviews. And one of the counselors said his, his response, the response from our city across the board was quite glum, actually. One of the counselors said, well, that's nice. It's not going to make up for 10 years of budget cuts. But, you know, it's nice. And of the, the 10 people that were interviewed on the street, most of them either hadn't heard of it or didn't think it was actually going to make any difference. Can I make a parallel again to believers? That this hope, this inheritance, doesn't seem to make much difference in our actual lives. And the way Paul is talking about it, the way he's praying, I keep thinking, no, this should make a difference in our lives. And that's why he's praying that it's a ministry of the Spirit to us. It's a ministry of the Spirit to us. We're going to get into how, what does this mean? How do, what do we do about this in a minute? We just want to finish going through the prayer first. The hope, the richness of our inheritance, and all of it then is undergirded by God's power. It's undergirded by God's power, the certainty of the hope that God can actually achieve what he's going to do, that he is going to come back one day, that we do have an inheritance. All of those things are true, that all of it rests on the foundation of God's power. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians and chapter 2 and verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5, if you look at it for just a second. 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, chapter 2, sorry. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the foundation of our faith, friends. The power of God. It's wonderful. Uh, As if Paul couldn't get... we, We lose this a little bit in English. But there's three different words relating to power in this. Actually, no, we don't. we don't lose this in English. In verse 19, he says, that you may know... What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? That's one word, dunamis, in the Greek, power, toward us who believe, according to the working, that's the word energy, it's another word for power, of his great might, and that's another word, uh, I wrote it down here somewhere, kratos, 
It's another word for power. It's latent power, power that is there that he has. And dunamis is the exercising of that power. Been a little over over the top. This is a significant thing. It's an active, it's a present working power, power for today. That's to be experienced now and one day in heaven. And so Paul prays deeply. This is the matter of his prayer, that we would know by the ministry of the Spirit the hope to which we've been called, the inheritance which we have, which is stored up for us in heaven, and the greatness of God's power. And then, and this is the third part of his prayer, he emphasizes, and this is why we're, we're, this is the heart of his prayer right here, is the greatness of God's power, the measure. We've looked at the motive, we've looked at the matter of his prayer, now we're going to get to the measure of his prayer, and it's the power of God that we would know the depth, the fullness of his power. In verses 20 to 23. And he continues, and he says that he, we would know the greatness of his power according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that that Jesus was proved to be the Son of God when he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, it says that that same spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is in each of us if we belong to Jesus. That same power is in us. And so friends, this morning, I I suspect that, and this is why I said it's a little open-ended because I'm still walking and learning, thinking about this because it's sort of, it's a big thought. We have access to power, probably more power than any of us actually realize. Does that scare you a little bit? It makes me a little nervous. Because with great power comes great responsibility. I know it's from Spider-Man. Great power comes great... But you look at this and go, Lord, that's very humbling. I've got access to this power. We're going to look at how we have access to that power in a minute. But we have, according to the Scriptures... Power over fear in John chapter 16 and 2 Timothy chapter 1. We have power over shame through the power of the cross in Colossians chapter 2. Power over guilt. We've been justified in Romans chapter 3. We have power over sin, power over death. Jesus has power over the dominion of darkness. And we've been given power in Acts chapter 1 to accomplish the Great Commission. There is power available through the resurrection. It's resurrection power, friends. We live in a world this morning, again, that is desperate for power. We've seen that in all of the abuses to get power at any cost. Have you been following that in the news? Nod your heads, or are we all living under a rock? Right, the abuse in every sector of society. Every kind of abuse based on your, your gender, based on where your culture, your race, across every part we've seen, our, our culture is power. We've even figured out how to turn being a victim into making it about power. Isn't it wonderful that we have access to power that is untainted? Power that has been won for us by Jesus at the cross, been won without abuse, without having to be a victim. Power. Friends, this is good news. This is why Paul is praying this for us. 
but not only power. And this is wonderful. This is, uh, this is phenomenal what Paul prays next. Not only do we have power of the resurrection, but we have authority as well in Christ. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, death could not hold him down. It says in Acts chapter 2, God had to raise him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God where he was seated at God's right hand. The right hand of God is the power hand of God. And Jesus sat there. He is the right hand of God. He has all power. He was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That's in the spiritual realm. We've talked about this before. It's where Jesus is seated. We'll look at Ephesians chapter 2. It's where we're seated spiritually with him. It's where the spiritual battle is taking place. He's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. Sometimes my kids, they, 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 they do stuff and I end up making these blanket statements. Tice is poking his sister and I say, Tice, stop poking your sister. So he starts kicking his, with his foot. Tice, stop kicking your sister. So he starts tickling her. Tice, stop touching her. Don't touch her now. Don't touch her later. Don't, just Stop. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's covering all his bases. So there's no loophole. Jesus has been placed at the right hand of God above every power and dominion and authority by whatever name they're called, whatever title they hold, now and forever. There's nobody higher. He can't be overruled. He's at the top. Oh, there's authority. Jesus has given all authority. And then, and here's the connection with us. Paul sums it up in verse 23, 22, sorry. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head of all things to the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So somehow we have access to power. We have Authority that we've been, that we were part of by our connection to Christ. He's been given, God put everything under his feet and he gave him to us, the church. And we are, Paul has two names for us there. We are his body and we are his fullness. There's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, verse 9. It says, For in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells. Okay, are you with me that far? In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. And then it continues. And you have been filled with Him. Yeah? He has, He's filled with all the deity, the, full, the, the fullness of the deity, and we are His fullness because we're filled with Him. And so, friends, that this is the key. We have delegated authority. We have authority and access to power as we are connected to him as his body. He's the head. Without him, we can't do anything. As we are filled with him, as we are in him, and he's in us, we have power and authority. Hallelujah. Amen. What does this mean for us? My question to myself was, okay, so how, what's the, how, how do we define that authority? I want to overstep my bounds. Uh, what, how, how, what does this mean? 
And so I started doing a little bit of research on what, what does this mean for a believer to have authority? What authority do we have in Christ as we're connected to him and as he's in us? The first really obvious one is that we have authority to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go. Or as you go, make disciples. The command is to make disciples. We have authority to make disciples in Jesus' name. And actually, in Acts, we have power to do it as well. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We have authority to wage a spiritual battle in the heavenly places. We'll look at that in a while at the end of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, stand firm. Peter in 1 Peter says as well, stand firm, wage the spiritual battle. And we have resources, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm available to us to be able to fight that battle. We have authority to claim the spiritual blessings because they've been given to us in Christ. We have authority to draw near to the throne in time of need in Hebrews chapter 4 to find grace and mercy. It says we can draw near with confidence. We have the right to do it in Christ. And lastly, and this is the big one, this is the scary one, to me at least, we have the right to ask for anything in Jesus' name and it will be done. Jesus says that at least four times in John 14, 15, and 16. It says, if you ask for anything in my name, it will be done. Now, we need to talk about what anything means, and we need to talk about what in Jesus' name means. But can I suggest to you that we need to start asking for stuff. Jesus says as much to his disciples in John chapter 16. He says, you haven't asked me for anything yet. And when I come back the second time after your sorrow, you won't need to ask for anything anymore. But I've made a way by my work through the spirit that you can. So ask. Ask. Which sort of gives away the key to the prayer. To, to, to what, how, we, how we start to exercise this. It's through prayer. By asking in Jesus' name. And when we ask in Jesus' name, back in the Old West, morning, brother, back in the Old West, in the United States, they used to have the, the, the general store. And the general store had an account for all his customers. And he knew that Best would have had an account in his name, and Best's children or, or Best's wife could come in and ask for stuff in his name. But it was a small town. It was still a small town. Everybody knew everybody. And so I, as the general store manager, knew the kinds of things that Best would want or need to be asked for. And so if someone came in his name and said, I want this, and I knew that Best would never in a 100 million years ask for that, I'd say no. But if it was something that I knew that was in accordance with his wants and his needs and his desires, I would say, yes, you've asked for it in his name, I'll give it to you, and I'll put it to his account. And it's the same for us. When we pray in Jesus' name, what that means is God knows we pray in accordance with Jesus' will, his desire, his vision, what he's doing, his plan. And when we ask in his name, he'll say yes. I hope I'm being vague enough and general enough to scare but everybody a little bit. The reason I say that is because I think there's two things we fall into in different church traditions. The first 
way that we fall into this is that we hear some of this and we go, yeah, I'm going to play it safe. Because what, 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 we're, what, we're, what we're, we're, we're toying with is, is saying, actually, we desire to see power that drives revival. We can't manufacture revival. We're not trying to do that. But what I am trying to do is, is see each of us experience personal revival. I say, I'm going to keep pursuing Jesus and his power until he does something new in me. And you know what happens when personal revival goes viral? It starts happening. And even if it's just us in this room, if we start pursuing him relentlessly. But sometimes we get nervous about this idea of the power of God, the, the kind that can revive resurrection power. Because revival is messy. It's messy. We fear every revival that's ever happened historically. It's always been messy. There's been controversy. There's been public confession of sin. Man, I don't want to do that. Serious. That does not sound fun to me. Public confession of sin. We fear that. It's messy. Change happened. Everything is thrown into disorder. Stuff. God does something new. He makes it revive, relive. And so we settle. We settle for a Christianity that is intellectual, that is maybe a little bit emotional. We settle for a Christianity that is devoid of true power. On the other hand, some folks hear this, some church traditions hear this, and we jump in head over heels, yes, go, let's do it. And we pray, and, and you end up in the place of, well, if you can name it, and you can claim it, and God wants you to be happy, and he's going to give you, and actually, that tradition ends up a little more, it's, it's a little more superstitious. God becomes less personal and more of a force to be manipulated. If I can pray the right prayer and muster enough faith, God will have to do something. That's not what the Bible teaches either. And that second one often ends up settling for material or what I want to call miraculous expressions of God's power as well. And friends, I suspect that those two extremes exist because as humans, we want it to be black and white. We want to know, this is how it works. This is what I'm going to do. And if it's not, then I'm going to not do it because it's too messy. It's too, and then we end up in two extremes. But we need to walk that line down the middle of saying there is power available and, and there's a risk, it could get messy, and that's okay, but we're going to come back to the Word of God. But we want more than just intellectual Christianity. Both of those approaches, friends, are spiritually shallow. Both end up in a kind of cultural Christianity that doesn't get transmitted along more than a couple of generations they lack the true power of Christ. Why? Because I want to suggest to you, and this is where I want to end this morning, that the way to walk in this is actually through relationship with God. And that's not black and white. I did a study last night on all the times it says about if you ask it, he'll give it. You know what I found? He says, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you ask, he'll give it. If you pray from a place of abiding in Christ and his word abides in you, he'll give it. 
If you play from a, pray from a place of fruitful obedience, he'll give it. If you pray from a place of, of faith, not as one who is double-minded, as James says, he'll give it. If you play according to the will in the name of the Father, sorry, if you pray according to the will of the Father in the name of Jesus, he'll do it. Do you know what all of those things have in common? They're all relational. Obedience is about relationship. Being filled with the Spirit is about relationship. Abiding in Christ, His Word abiding in you is about relationship. Doing something in, according to the will of the Father is about relationship. And so it's not a black and white thing. It's a, we need to say, we're going to walk forward in this together as a local church and say, Lord, we want to see you move in our town, in our church, and in us. It starts here. Would you be willing to do that with me to start today? We're going to pray in a little bit. And I have no idea how long I've been preaching for, but. (laughs) Would you be willing to pray big, audacious, expectant prayers filled with the Holy Spirit from a place of abiding in Christ as his words abide in us from a place of fruitful obedience in Christ in faith, not as double-minded, according to the will of the Father in the name of Jesus. Let me end with this. It's a quote from A.W. Tozer. And he simply says this, What can we plain Christians do to bring back the departed glory? Is there some secret we may learn? Is there a formula for personal revival we can apply to the present situation, to our own situation? The answer to these questions is yes. Yes. The answer though may easily disappoint some persons because it's anything but profound. I bring no esoteric cryptogram, no mystic code to be painfully deciphered. I appeal to no hidden law of the unconscious, no occult knowledge meant only for a few. The secret is an open secret. And it is simply this. Acquaint thyself with God. Paul says the same in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I seek, I strive to take hold of Christ because he has taken hold of me. If you know what that looks like, if you're sitting there this morning going, I'm not sure what that, how do I do that? Would you come talk to me afterwards? Because that's what we're about as church, is trying to figure out how to do that together, individually and as a body. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing and pray as well. Father, um, Lord, I I sense that you want to use this new thing you're doing amongst us, this new church plan. I sense you want to use us. You want to use us to see new new churches planted. You want to use us to see, be part of seeing the the city transformed. Father, we want to pray with your authority to see people healed, to see lives transformed, to see people drawn to you and, and become followers of Jesus. We want to see those things. Father, would you do a work in each of us, in each person? Lord, would you deal with our fear? Would you deal with the sin? Would you deal with the the, the philosophies and the deceptive ways that have taken us captive? Free us, Lord Jesus, so that we can wholeheartedly seek you and deal properly with your power and the authority you've delegated to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.